Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captains Podcast, show number one of the week. We're talking Rory McElroy today, we're talking All Ireland quarter and semi finals, and we're talking Rogue Falcons. Murph is on holidays, but Ken is here. Hi, Ken. Hi, on, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. It's a clear enough sign, I think, that one person is beginning to dominate a sport when each landmark victory is viewed through the prism of what it tells us about how many more landmark victories that person can achieve. Because McElroy's win at the USPGA last night was fairly heroic in sporting terms in its own right, but immediately the penny seemed to drop with everyone watching, well, certainly with me, I'll talk for myself here. Um, that he can grind it out too. You could sense that maybe McElroy was thinking this way as well. Um, he'd eagled the 10th, but barely acknowledged it. So he, he hits an amazing approach shot, holds his eagle put, bare, just barely a little tiny fist bump. A couple of holes later, he'd missed a few by this stage, birdie put on the 13th, nails it, and then lets rip with a Brendan Bugler, Claire Herding style fist pump. At that moment, I think he, maybe he realised that he, he was going to do this, if he ever doubted it at all. You enjoyed the performance? Yeah, I mean, I I turned it on and I saw that there was four guys all up at the top of the leaderboard and about five or six holes to play and I was trying to work out how long that was likely to take. Um, and I figured, yeah, okay, I think I can watch this. This should be quite exciting. And in the end, it wasn't even that exciting. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, the shootout at the PGA was... More of a procession for Rory McIlroy. Well, only... Well, it wasn't, he won by one shot. Yeah, but only because he was he, he was sort of panicking a little on the last hole. The, <laughs> I mean, he, he had he had plenty of room to spare. It would have taken a bit of a um, bit of a disaster. But yeah, I mean, I mean, um, I'm not suggesting Owen that it was it was easy. That's just the level that he's playing at at this moment. Nicholson took out his anger on a cameraman. I don't know if you saw this. What was he so angry? You're about? standing on my foot. Well, the guy was standing on his foot. The cameraman, yeah. Did it already been the an cameraman not noticed? <laughs> at, the, at the 18th, maybe the 17th or 18th tee, uh, Mickelson was trying to eat a bit of food, and he clearly wanted some privacy here. He, he said, needed maybe nourishment. He needed nourishment. The cameraman was right in his face, and he said, come on, come on, guy, or something like that, you know, come on, come on, chief. Uh, so the cameraman duly stepped away. Then after the after the after his round was complete, he went to shake hands with, I think it could have been the caddy, of Ricky Fowler and first the cameraman was right up in his face uh, but apparently standing on his foot as well you're standing on my foot give me some space here. <laughs> he said this with his face pressed against the lens <laughs> not quite no he, his face is, that would have been a nice shot uh, he did hit one amazing put yeah well, he hit a few uh, amazing Nicholson. shots yeah uh, the commentator said you've got to be kidding me uh, sounding a lot like the fans who you could hear uh, shouting encouragement very loud. Well, that was probably Butch Harmon, Ken. That was probably the commentator in question who is Phil Mickelson's coach, oh, uh, really? swing coach. He was out there on the range with him that morning. And immediately, what I like about Butch Harmon, he's clearly going to be somewhat biased towards his own charges. Ricky Fowler is also his player. So it was it was Butch Harmon by two yeah. up against R- Rory McIlroy towards the end there. But there's no problem with Harmon going out in the range with Mickelson and then coming straight on TV and divulging in great detail what they're working on, the secrets, yeah. the emotional makeup of Mickelson on the day. It's, it's exactly what you want from Sky's point of view. Yeah. Uh, how come were, uh, was it Ricky Fowler yeah. who seemed to be mic'd up? 
I wouldn't have thought he was mic'd up because you could hear what he was. Him probably just that those boom mic. You're picking up various mics. Really, because I couldn't I couldn't hear it with anyone else, but you could always hear Ricky Fowler's caddy. And I was thinking, wow, you actually get to hear what they're saying. And then I was list- I listened to it for a few seconds and I like, just automatically tuned out. They're just droning on about what shot they were going to play. That's I don't know what, that's what I don't, they tend to do. I don't know what I expected. These big golf tournaments, yeah. <laughs> it's a sort of dynamite. Limerick and Kilkenny went at it old school at Croker yesterday. Nicky English said in his Irish Times, called him today, that they were the worst conditions he's seen in Croke Park in almost 30 years. And Limerick's Seamus Hickey couldn't hide his hurt. Are you serious? Because, I mean, yeah. I, I, I heard someone say that I was watching a bit of it on TV and I heard someone say these conditions are terrible. And I was looking at going, well, it's raining pretty heavily, but the pitch seems to be perfect. You know, you're looking down at the pitch and I didn't see any problem with it. There was green grass everywhere, unless, it, unless it's painted. It I was know. seriously heavy. Though. I wasn't there. I was there must have been worse. I mean, has the pitch always been immaculate at Croke Park over the years? I, I can imagine there must have been worse conditions. I mean, I don't mean to say... Obviously, when somebody says something like that, there's usually an element of... Yeah, and I don't think they're talking about strictly on pitch conditions, the, the, the grass or anything. It was more what the, yeah, the, the, the supporters couldn't see is sitting in certain areas of the ground. I thought, actually, when you, when you could see the supporters, was it Limerick supporters who were on the hill? They all looked like they were having a great time. <laughs> I mean, they were being absolutely drenched. But at some level of, of wetness, you just kind of th- think, well, actually, this is kind of fun now. You know, I started out, uh, being rained on and thinking, oh, this is annoying, and trying to get into one of those stupid poncho things, which are a complete waste of time, by the way, because you just end up steaming up from the inside. So it's actually more unpleasant than if you're just to get drenched by rainwater. But it seemed to me everyone was having having a good time. It didn't affect the enjoyment. Limerick Seamus Hickey didn't enjoy it too much. I don't think he couldn't hide his hurt when he was presented with his Man of the Match award in the Sunday game. It's 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 raw now at the moment. Um, it's it's just very raw. Um, we, we we literally poured ourselves out out there. Um, yeah, this is this is a tough place to be for us, you know. Um, we felt we wanted redemption this year. We wanted to we wanted to come to Crow Park and do ourselves justice. And I'm sure everybody believes you've got redemption today. That's no doubt, except of course in the result. Well done again on being the Etihad or team man of the match. Thank and Beatrice Cosgrove from Etihad is here with the award. Thanks, but it wasn't just Beatrice, Ken. There was another character lurking around that scene. Yes, uh, there was a, a just a, a Bedouin sheikh uh, standing there uh, holding a falcon, a, a hooded falcon, just standing there, not speaking. Falcon was there with his hood, didn't flap around and do anything inappropriate, but was standing there um, throughout the entire process uh, as the young man um, spoke of his pain. Uh, his hurt, his misery, his raw emotions, uh, and all of it was conducted next. To this. <laughs> well, uh, I, I suppose Etihad. They do that. I mean, I've, I think it wasn't the World Cup final. It was it wasn't Etihad on that occasion. It was Emirates. But I mean, the World Cup final. The first people out in the pitch for the trophy presentation were all of these um, Emirates flight attendants in uniform. You know what I mean? This was like so. Obviously, it's, it's where did the Falcon come from? Though, is the Falcon particularly prized? Falcon is a kind of. Uh, you know, falconry is a big thing among the, the sort of uh, aristocratic uh, classes in the desert. Uh, I suppose you would go and um, you know, I suppose you'd be lying around and you get the falcon to come and bring you back some food mm-hmm. of whatever kind in the desert. They ha- it's quite tricky because the bird has to kill the, uh, has to avoid killing the, um, the prey, has to bring it back alive. Yeah. Uh, so they have to be very highly trained. Um, but yeah, it seems to be uh, something that Etihad are trying to get associated with strange touch for Seamus Hickey I'm sure trying to pour his heart out with the with Mr Falcon there beside him we've posted that clip on Twitter anyway at Second Captains if you want to have a look at it Anthony Moyles is in studio later after Dublin and Donegal's wins in the football he'll be joined by his old teammate Seamus Kenny who's just announced his retirement after 15 years with the Meath team but we're starting with Rory McIlroy's fourth major Dave Hannigan is in New York and Maliki Clerken is now here in studio Maliki cheers for calling down no worries do you get the sense with his celebrations and post-match quotes that Rory himself needed to convince himself that he could do it this way because the rest of us were waiting for it. Yeah. Maybe he just needed to be sure that he could dog it out too. I I always get the sense with, with Rory that uh, he he's pretty reasonably sure he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> uh, if, you know, he just has to show it. Uh, I often... Remember when, when he would like... Remember, say, at St. Andrews in whatever year that was, was that 09 or 10 or whatever, when he shot like 63 in the first day and then 80 the second day. Um, I was 
I remember I was kind of walking around on that that round where he shot eighty, and that was in the period where his shoulders would slump and his head would go and all that. And I always got this sense that it, that part of that was just him going, oh, "I'm really good at this. Why is this not working for me?" You know, and, and that really sort of kind of Kevin the teenager kind of way. Um, and so by this that that that. Uh, I see exactly what you're saying, and and it does sort of feel, you know, it is great that that he actually pulled one out when, you know, kind of against the head, you know, like if if you stop the clock around the as the as the pairs were going around the turn yesterday, I'd say he was about fourth favourite, you know, behind Stenson, behind Fowler, behind Mickelson, and for him to pull it out to play what is, by my record anyway, the best shot I've seen all year. Uh, to the par five to dog it out over the back nine when you know players all around them were kind of losing it. You know, Mickelson was missing a putt, Fowler was missing a few, Stenson was spraying the ball around a bit, and Rory was the only who kept his head all the way through. I can see why. Yes, absolutely. That that seems great for us from the outside. That yeah, he 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 did it. But I don't think he would ever have really doubted that he could. Dave, the other dynamic to throw in there was this rather strange one for a professional golfer in um, at a major trying to win it, of having to sit there watching the guys who were starting to streak clear of him and having a very, uh, trying to stay calm through that. It seems that a lot of people are saying that maybe he, he sort of enjoyed that, having the guys in, in his sights and knowing what he had to do. I don't know if he enjoyed it early on. I think I think all the all the delays on the front nine certainly I think played havoc with his rhythm. He's a fast player, and you know suddenly having to wait on tee boxes that may not have been you know the best for him. But certainly on on the eighteenth, I mean Mickelson was. I, I think his quotes afterwards were very magnanimous, but I think Mickelson was pretty pissed off <laughs> about the second shot, and certainly that you know. Uh, on the television coverage last night, as it happened live, I mean, CBS picked up on the fact that Mickelson was was you know letting one of the officials know that he was very unhappy that Mickel or that Rory was playing his second shot uh, into the green when he was, uh, you know, that was the chance to put pressure on him and see if he could crack. So I mean, it was it was kind of a farcical situation at the end. But again, the whole thing was so uh, unreal in terms of you know the trying to play against the darkness coming from behind as he did at the turn you know this this i i think you know speaks to a whole new kind of level it was very roy keane-esque if you like <laughs> you know if we think of roy keane around 1999 you know 2001 that kind of vintage you know when it's really really tough i will step up and show what i have and i thought there was a, a lot of that last night yeah fowler i think even politely enough said afterwards well we we knew that we were okay with them playing that those tee shots, but we kind of figured we'd get a free run at the at the approach shots rather than well, be joined by the boys. Now, in in fairness, and, and I think Dave is right. I, you know, I think there is a a, a, a real sort of adultness about the way McIlroy. I think he was getting really annoyed at how slow they were going up front. And I know, you know, the the groups were compacted and they were, went off nine minutes apart. But man, Ricky Fowler takes a long time over the ball. Conspiracy theories are that himself and Mickelson, who clearly had this buddy-buddy dynamic, might have been happy enough to play a little bit slowly to yeah, make I mean, McIlroy swing. I don't even know that that would be, there's even any conspiracy there. I, mean, I, I, I think that is, you know, that is how to play against McIlroy. You know, if he's in the group behind you, you know, make make him wait because you, Dave's right; he doesn't like waiting. And I thought that was—I thought him banging his his tee shot uh, down the 18th while uh, while or not not even was it even that whole the the whole maybe the 16th where Fowler had gone way miles to the yeah, right. Fowler was in the other fairway. Yeah, and he decided to play through. Bang it down, bang it down the middle, and say, "All right, Ricky, you've got to play your 40-yard hook around the trees now." Meanwhile, I've cranked it down. I've hit the longest drive of the week down the middle. Yeah, I thought he played the mental game really well. That's a good sense of uh, ruthlessness. That's something that Har- Harrington showed in yeah. fairness to him when he was winning those majors and we all know <laughs> the Tiger has it. So this is another facet to Rory that helped him Look, get over the line. He's, you know, we, we, we've got to get, our, get, get comfortable with the notion that this is one of the, the, the most elite sportsmen in the world. You know, he's won four majors. He's he's done. He's moved to to the very top of of a sport that it is really tough to get to the top of. Like the the number of people who win three tournaments in a row in the history of golf is very very low because to play because the margins are so tiny in golf. One missed putt on a Friday morning, you know, is the difference between winning on a Sunday night, 
and he has done it three tournaments in a row and three tournaments, not Mickey Mouse tournaments, two majors and a WGC. Like, this guy is one, he's a, he is an absolute killer. What was the reaction like in the US, Dave? Did it, would the viewers still prefer a Tiger procession rather than what many would see as one of the best finishes to a major in years? I thought last night watching it, you know, on, on CBS and then kind of the post game on, on the golf channel, it was a real sense. It brought me back to the summer of 2000 when I moved there when Tiger, you know, owned golf and, and was dominating to such an extent. There was a real uh, comparison point to that. And there was seemed to be an effort on behalf of the commentators, you know, to, to outline the new narrative for the fans that this is, the new Tiger. Tiger is dead. Long live Tiger. His name is now Rory. And, you know, there was, there was definitely a sense that they were pushing that. And, and as Maliki says, because that is now the situation. I think yesterday morning, somebody compared, you know, Woods and McElroy to Michael Jordan and LeBron James, uh, which is a, seems to me a, to be a very apt analogy if you know American sport. Um, you know, they're, they're the same but different kind of thing. Now, he has a bit to go, yes, to match Tiger's achievements. But, you know... Again, last night, I think watching it and at the end and the celebrations, it brought to mind the old Dan Jenkins, the great American golf journalist. When Tiger was in his pomp, he said, the only things that can damage Tiger are injury and a bad marriage. <laughs> and, now, and now we look at Tiger and we go, well, injuries, yes. Bad marriage, yes. So we look at Rory and go, what can stop him? If he's in form, you know, if he can produce it when he wants to produce it, he's pretty much unbeatable. But, you know, there are outside factors for a 25-year-old going on with his life. Yeah, and uh, some of those factors have, uh, we've already seen. He's had his breakup. He's had a couple of management changes, including mm-hmm. one particularly messy one, and it doesn't seem to, to tear him. Uh, now, you never, we don't know. We don't know what, what the whole, by definition, we don't know what the unforeseen circumstances might be, but he seems to be showing an ability so far to not let any of that worry him. Well, he is always, you know, when when Rory has been able to pr- play freely, when he's managed to sort of unclutter the noise around him, this is this is what he can do, you know. Um, when he when he was like an amateur golfer, he was so far ahead of everybody else. Par- partly, of course, because he was so talented. But you know, the other side of it is, you know, he, it was just him, his mum and dad, traveling the world playing golf. It's very straightforward life. Uh, when he was. In his first sort of year or two on tour, when he was really struggling, he was struggling with, you know, being on tour, what this new life is. When he got used to what the life was, he won the Dubai Desert Classic. He won three or four tournaments. Uh, he did well at the Ryder Cup. So it's when, when things kind of go messy, when he cha- like he changed from Toby Chandler to Horizon and then moved away from them, when he changed golf clubs, all of that kind of stuff. Those kind of things do sort of... he. he his life can get a little cluttered, but when he can free himself of the clutter and just play, you know, he's, he is what he is. He said afterwards, Dave, I think I've got to take it one small step at a time. I think the two next realistic goals are the career Grand Slam and trying to become the most successful European player ever. I would say it's almost, uh, I don't know if it's just a sense of politeness, but it seems almost quaint that he throw, threw the word European in there because I don't know if anybody uh, anywhere really is thinking of it in those terms. I mean, people are, are now just... Um, taking off the shackles of, uh, as sports fans, I think we're taking off our own shackles in terms of the ambition that we would have for Rory. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think politeness and perhaps also an attempt to dampen down the hype perhaps by him because he knows going, you know, we've got seven months or whatever till Augusta. Going into Augusta, you know, it is going to be unbelievable, Mm. the hype surrounding this guy. Um, And, you know, to be able to control that or play within that is going to be some achievement. There was hype this past week in Louisville, but, you know, this, the Augusta thing, we, we're going to build it up and build it up. We have seven months, and, you know, it, it's going to be out of control. But, no, he, he is not, you know, we shouldn't be talking about him as or potentially the best European player. I mean, that was, uh, you know, quaint, as you put it. If this is Nicholas and Wood's territory. The Americans are very comfortable now with discussing him in terms of Nicholas and Woods. And, and a lot of people last night were saying this was very Nicholas-like. He went out, he had a blip, he got, he got back on an even keel, he made a wonder shot, and then he gutted it out on the back nine, made powers, didn't hit anything loose, and then just did enough to win, which is, you know, which when you look at the record of the great players in majors, there are some blowouts, but there are an awful lot of ones where they just do enough to win and they wait for other people to make mistakes and they capitalize. So he's very much, you know, Woods, Nicholas and, and Rory, you know, we, it's a trifecta now or a triptych or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Have you got the sense, Manny, that this is the one that 
has may, maybe up until now he was winning majors and after the first there's still a sense of it's just one major yeah. after the second all right he's really talented after the British Open people were very realistically talking about him in, in the company that Dave yeah. talks about there and now there's not even it's almost more ridiculous not to put him in that bracket yeah and and, and I guess it goes back to what we talked talked about at the start um, people like to see you dog it out you know they they, they like to see in, in such a, a kind of urbane sport as golf like the thing with golf is that on on any given week, you could take one of the top fifty players in the world, and they could just play out of their mind and win by seven shots. Mm. You can do that. You know that 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 sometimes you just see the course in a different way to everybody else. The putts that that shave the hole for everybody else just catch the lip and go in, and you 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 just walk clear. And that was what. As long as McElroy is winning, uh, it, it, it seems an odd thing for people to kind of look down their nose a little bit at. And yet, as long as McElroy is winning his majors by that far, people were kind of going, well, you know, anybody can do that in a given week. This time he did it from from behind. You know, he, he and and I think that that, that sort of, it's, it's ridiculous that it gather, gathers you up a bit more sort of respect. But I think... You know, people still take a wee bit of convincing about you know the, you know the sort of the manliness of golf or the or the sort of you know wh- what is the like what's the sort of the animal kind of attraction of it. It it isn't really there. But any sports fan in the world can watch a guy who's struggling with his game find his game in the last two hours when it really matters. Like that's that that doesn't take a lot of of explaining to people. Yeah, and the mo- most important part of this mightn't be what sports fans or golf fans think about it. it mightn't even be Rory's own but it might be the effect it has on the other players and the way they now start to talk and think about Rory I don't know if you get any sense of that Dave the guys like Ricky Fowler who really should be winning a number of majors themselves is there a chance that they might you know, they might start developing a little bit of a mental block about this guy there definitely has been a lot of talk about that in the last couple of weeks that you know when, when Tiger was, was you know at his peak that he almost once he teed it up he was a couple of shots clearer because mentally the other guys were afraid of him and I think with Rory you know there, there's definitely a sense that a lot of them maybe not your Phil Mickelson's who, who believe you know that they can beat anybody at, on any day but there are certainly a lot of pros who now look and say well if Rory brings it we're playing for second or you know we're playing we're, we're playing for a top five finish um, Fowler the thing about Fowler is like his record he's had one of the great seasons not not winning a major finishing in the top mm-hmm. five in all four majors he's a brilliant young player himself the Fowler, Stenson, and Mickelson, the way they played yesterday is what makes this such a fantastic victory. It's like normally guys go out and, you know, the leaderboard changes quickly. One or two guys drop away fast and, you know, maybe one guy makes a run at the leader. But here you had three really, really top-class players. I mean, Mickelson, you know, second only to Tiger in his generation and Fowler probably going on to become one of the best of his generation and they're playing out of their skins for much of this round and then our guy just stays in there and hangs in there and then finds the way to win. All right, Malachi, just lastly, we're talking Dublin a little bit later on. Your own county couldn't quite do it against him at the weekend. I, I really had to... There was to... a follow-up here. Oh, come on. You really had to, you had to go there. there on, the, on this day of celebration <laughs> for us people from the north of the island. I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just had to I throw know. something in there. Yes, Any chance yes. another, another county from the Monaghan, north of the island, Donegal yes. can... Monaghan got their asses handed to them. As I, uh, I, I don't think Donegal will... will they, they won't get beaten by whatever, 17 points, but... Um, I wasn't overly impressed with Donegal actually on the weekend, right. and I think uh, I think Dublin might give them a bit of a, a bit of a lesson as well. Okay, Maliki, thank you and apologies, Dave. <laughs> thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Cheers. And Rory walks away, Ken, with one of the largest trophies in sport. You got to be careful with those. Rory managed to catch the lid of this Wanamaker Trophy last night, which had been dropped by the USPGA suit, the guy who has uh, given him the award. I don't know if you well, I, I mean, he. It, what happened was he was holding the trophy by its handles with both hands. And then he went to shake Rory McIlroy's hand with his right hand, right hand taking his hand off the trophy, which immediately collapsed. His left hand <laughs> was unequal to the task of holding it up. Um, but McIlroy, I suppose, has some practice. Uh, safe hands, he assured the, the guy. Nigel Mansell was not so lucky after winning the Brazilian Grand Prix in 1989. I was sent a YouTube clip of this last night by Jonathan Davies. So thanks for this one. Mansell won the race for Ferrari. Nigel Mansell was with Ferrari for a year, which I had to say escaped my nine-year-old 
attention at the time. So it looked weird enough, him there winning his massive big trophy. He's handed this monster, an absolute beast. We're talking Stanley Cup, Wanamaker Trophy, all the, the, the huge, big, awkward-looking yoke. It appears then to catch his finger, or he appears to catch his finger on the bottom of it, creating an incredibly awkward moment as he storms off the podium, yeah. giving out yards to the, the suit who'd passed him in so the first place. Is that clutching, somebody else's fault? Clutching his finger and almost leaping about in the way that you sometimes do if you hit your finger with a hammer or something like this. Um, while I'm pretty sure it's Ayrton Senna standing there in yeah. second place, looking yeah, as Ayrton Senna usually, Mildly usually does. amused. Pretty, uh, pretty cool cam collected before his home crowd, but uh, Nigel Mansell there just crying. <laughs> Ireland's women's rugby team confirmed their spot in the semi-final of the World Cup against England this Wednesday with a win against Kazakhstan at the weekend, which brings us to this. Ken Early's World Cup crystal ball. I see a bale of mass-produced T-shirts. I see uh, a crudely drawn cartoon scene. Uh, I see Neve Briggs uh, holding aloft a fly swatter. And they're crawling around uh, in the form of a fly. Is a fly, a fly, with the face, the unmistakable face of Emily Scarrett. Yes, Owen. Uh, I, I think that this is what's going to happen. The Irish women's team are going to beat England in the semi-final. Uh, and are we going to become uh, crudely immortalised in this sort of uh, folk... Uh, I don't know what even what you call those T-shirts. You know the ones I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have an idea again. Yeah, we'll be wearing them next week as Ireland defeat England to take their place in the World Cup final. I like it, Ken. I think Ken Early's World Cup crystal ball. I think the giant fly swatter was about the, the only thing missing from the Sunday Independent article on women's rugby <laughs> <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. What are, two, what are two crude stereotypes thrown in there? Well, it certainly seems to have succeeded in stirring up a little bit of, uh, a little bit of comment. We are joined now by Nikki English to talk a bit about yesterday. Nikki, really, um, there's two ways of looking at it, really. One is that Kilkenny are a beatable team and that whoever comes through the second semi-final this weekend will fancy their chances. But I read your column this morning and you seem to be looking at it a bit more positively. You think that uh, that Kilkenny now go into this in pretty good shape? Yeah, I think they're... I I think, yeah, OK, I agree they're beatable, but like someone is going to have to do it and uh, they, they they have a huge spirit and hunger and desire, which is, you know, amazing if you think how long the team has been or, or many of the team have been around and... Uh, you know they have a, a lot of craft, uh, a lot of know-how, and like they have a great bench to bring on. You saw Shefflin and, and Richie Power coming on and being impactful, and you still have the likes of Tommy Walsh, Walter Walsh. Uh, you know they they have a huge uh, bench. Aidan Fogarty can come in, so I, I think they have they have a bit to work on as well. They'll know themselves that you know maybe at times they didn't use the ball as well in the first half as they had have tried to. Uh, early on in, in in the campaign, and uh, but they, they, for me they show great spirit, and and they will be hard to beat. I think. Yeah. Shefflin was impactful, as you say, in a different way, maybe to how we've seen him. It was more about um, the physical stuff. It was more about, about hooking, blocking, all that. Well, not that he doesn't have that work rate, but uh, it certainly seemed as though uh, I don't know with players like Shefflin, with a team like Kilkenny, even though you know they've done it before, do you have to? Can you be a hundred percent sure until you actually see them in the middle of a match of that intensity, they're going to stand up to it? Yeah, well, I suppose you, you you can because really they they were for the most part I would have thought untried really this year. You know, Dublin were very disappointing, Galway previously disappointing, and Offaly really didn't put up any uh, challenge at all to Kilkenny. So until yesterday, really, you know, Limerick are a top team and they've been you know they were in the semi final last year. Uh, Munster champions last year, close enough. You know, did well against Tipperary this year. So Limerick were, if they turned up, which they did, were going, were going to put up a big challenge. And you know, you'd, you, as you say, you'd, you'd, we'd seen it before from Kilkenny, but not necessarily in 2014. And uh, you know, but they like it's that just that work rate. And you know, even though Henry, she- I mean Henry Shefflin, you know, it's moved on from you know Henry having to start. 
you know, he's he's been brought on as a sub now for the last couple of games. He's got over his injuries. Richie Power coming in as a sub. But it's the actual uh, example that even the, the great player that Henry Sheffield needs, nine on Ireland medals, he comes in there with, with 10, 15 minutes to go. When the need is greatest, actually, when it looked like Kilkenny, to me, at that stage, were going out. And it's not just what he scores, but the example he gives in blocking, in hooking, in turning Richie McCarthy back towards his own goals at one stage himself and Richie Power. And that's, you know, that, that doesn't happen by accident. You know, that's, that's, that's tried and tested in, in, in the training in Nolan Park. And you, and you know from looking at him yesterday that there is serious intensity in their, in their training. You can have no doubt about that, that, that that intensity is there because Limerick hit him with everything. You know, Wayne McCarthy or Wayne McNamara, uh, Declan Hannan came in and hit, hit a Kilkenny for that one stage as well. Do you know what I mean? Hugely physical challenges. But Kilkenny were up for it and they matched the, the best that Limerick could throw at them in, in physicality and, and in um, in spirit. And then they just had a little bit extra in, in and a very little extra in hurling sense. They got the goals that, that Limerick didn't really. But it was, it, it, for me, it was a very, very entertaining Great, exciting game, really. The parts of the team that maybe aren't functioning for Kilkenny, are they easily fixed before the final? Or do we just have to accept that Kilkenny, um, and maybe Kilkenny fans have to accept that they're not quite at the level that they have been at, but they could still well be good enough to win the All-Ireland? Yeah, I think that, I, I think that's... I, I, they're not the team they were, there's no question about that. But but that's not to say that they wouldn't they couldn't win the All-Ireland. You know, I, I, I would have thought that, from what I saw last year in, in, in Turles, that... You know that the, the the rate of decline really was it would have been would have continued this year, uh, and that Kilkenny wouldn't actually, you know, they wouldn't be the the, the, the favourites for the All Ireland in my book starting off, uh, but like they have, like they have dealt with anything that's been thrown at them, uh, you know, Jackie Turl and JJ Delaney, they, they you know they were under serious pressure yesterday from from Graham Mulcahy and JJ particularly from Shane Dowling, but still you know they. They, they hung in there, Brian Hogan hung in there and at the end, you know, you saw Brian Hogan charging up the field there, kicking the ball in front of him. You know, it wasn't pretty but like it was at the same time it was very uh, it, it, it was what the conditions called for and they really you know, they really embraced it and went at it hard and, and, and took on Limerick at, at their own game and uh, you know, they, they were impressive. Now, you wonder if it's real if, if it was a real fine day and a real dry day and you had the Cork forwards like the Cadigan and Harndy, you know, if Cork are to be Tipperary uh, or, you know, some of the Tipperary forwards, you know, running at them, whether, 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 how they deal with that. But, you know, they didn't have to do it just because, you know, they they, they, they dealt with what Limerick had and, and, you know, ultimately Limerick couldn't get the goal that would have would, would have won it from, I think. Mm, have you let slip there, Nicky, that you think Cork are going to be Tip this weekend? I find it. I find that very. I find it hard to call Cork and Tip at any time. Really, I think you know. There's, it's uh, you know on form Cork should beat them. I think uh, you know if you if you take Limerick beat Tipperary in the championship and and Cork subsequently beat them, well that would mean that Cork should should confirm that form. But like with Cork and Tip, you you could never be sure, and that's why it is. Uh, you know the bookmakers have Cork and Tip even money, as I understand it, and that's. Uh, I'm not surprised with that because I could see plenty of circumstances where Tipperary could win it actually because I think, but at the same time, you know, Cork have the form in the book and and I, I think the Cork forwards are, are possibly livelier in, in 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 you know in pace terms than Tipperary. Uh, that's not to know. That's I, I, I think if I was Kilkenny, I, I think I'd met, I'd be able to. I think I'd be able to manage the very forwards easier than I'd manage the Cork forwards. But, you know, that's not to say the very would beat Cork in the first place, you know. All right, Nicky, great to talk as always. Thanks a million. Thanks very much, Owen. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. I quite like Nicky's take there just to go back to the start of our chat on Kilkenny. Yes, they are beatable, but someone has to do it. You often hear this about great teams. Oh, are they that great? They've got weaknesses, blah, 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 but it's um, nobody seems to be beating them so far this year. You were quite struck, Ken, by Henry Shefflin's oh, intensity when he came off the bench. Leadership. <laughs> That's serious leadership. I just I saw Henry Shefflin 
um, just uh, confronting Limerick players. And I saw it was the best chess barging I've ever seen. It was again and again and again and again and turning around to chess barge the next guy. And if John, I wondered if John Terry was watching this on Sky. I don't know if it was one of the Sky matches. Probably not. No, it was on Sky. It was. John Terry was probably watching that. And you know what he was thinking on? Fair play. Fair play. That's what John Terry said. Uh, remember, we were talking about Diego Costa and John Terry. But that was a much more. That was almost like a slow motion. Oh chest well, fire. it was. It was. But it was. It was. You know, it was two. You know, men, two leaders, uh, taking each other on. But Terry has spoken about it uh, since then, and it obviously made a big impression on him. He thought you probably saw. You know, uh, every everyone probably saw. You know, this <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, he, he he literally was like everyone in Europe took notice of this thing. Maybe they did. Uh, I mean, I did at the time. Uh, and he said, um, you know, but I just thought, you know, he squared up to me and I just thought, fair play. So they would love, uh, they would have they loved what they'd seen from Asia. Gavin that's, um, that's masculinity, on Irish masculinity in its rawest form. We've got an Irish Times second captain's football podcast coming out. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm down 12 fields and we'll see them. What you're doing down here, you surely, man. Well, obviously the season kicked off yesterday with the Community Shield, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And Arsenal, very impressive performance from them, their chances this season. But uh, we're also going to have an interview with Hank Tenkade, the former... Uh, Ajax manager, former assistant to Rijkaard at Barcelona and to Avram Grant at Chelsea um, to talk a little bit about his life in football, I suppose. Don't? Yeah, and his philosophy, Dutch football philosophy is at probably an all-time high at the moment with Louis van Gaal and the rave reviews he's getting. I'm intri- uh, I'm and of course, don't forget Brendan Rodgers. Huh? Don't forget Brendan Rodgers. I mean, you talk about Louis van Gaal, but you know, what we're talking about here is ideas and ideas aren't uh, contained. Uh, ideas have got nothing to do with passports, though. Uh, and I think you'll find uh, that uh, Hank Tenkata also has had uh, some relations with Brendan Rodgers in the past. I think you'll find we're going to talk about this as well. Do you want to tell us what's going on there? <laughs> That's, uh, it the involves re- our all-time record goal scorer, Robbie Keane. The Republic of Ireland captain, Robbie Keane. Uh, and he's, I don't know, he's hes engaging in some kind of uh, social media thing. Oh, no. <laughs> it seems to involve ice being poured. It, it's Robbie Keane as part of a chain of social challenges being mm-hmm. passed between him and his celebrity friends. I don't know who challenged him. Who challenged him to do this? He mentions it at the beginning of the video. But he, he then passes it on to his good friends, Steve Nash and Mickey Rourke. <laughs> so... Uh, that's a, that's the company he's keeping. Let's talk football. Anthony Moyles and the recently retired Seamus Kenny have called into us today. Guys, thanks for being here. No bother at all. This is the most Meath-dominated panel I think we've ever had. Sean Boyle and Mick Lyons are waiting downstairs in case they, <laughs> they get the nod here. We'll start with Dublin and more to the point, um, I suppose, how Donegal will go about beating Dublin. Malachi O'Rourke, Anthony says that, and he maintained after the game, we had the right game plan. He said he talked to the players earlier in the week about the idea of going man for man and having a shootout but thought better of it and he admits himself maybe it looks silly now to go the way they did but after 25 minutes it was working alright w- would you say that they that they did go the right way about it? Um, possibly possibly I think and not to uh, get the, te- the old second captain's bingo going too early in the morning <laughs> but I think they did have the, the game plan but essentially I think he had the wrong people in the in, in the wrong positions if you look at even very, very simply, the two goals that Dublin got in the first half that then pretty much killed the game, um, it was just kind of pretty bad defending, really. Um, like, the first goal came from a kick-out. It wasn't like it was anything like a, a breakaway from Dublin. It came from a kick-out. Dermot Connolly just kind of ghosted him behind the defence. Uh, one of the backs went out to get him. He just he just injected a bit of pace and he ran past. So there was a lot of, actually, Monaghan players there. Um one or two fellas kind of trotting back, not really getting back, not really seeing the danger. The second goal, then McCarthy just basically took it on, went through two players and then slipped a hand pass. Um, so 
you know, Monaghan sacked to go bringing Gologli back and I think McDonough back, um, basically the two half forwards, was was okay. It was the right thing to do. It's something that we've seen before with Cork doing this year, everything else. But at the same time, you fellas back there who aren't really used to it, A, um, and probably B, just aren't probably equipped to play that kind of role. So they're not as defensively set up or as defensively minded maybe as, say, the likes of some of the Donegal lads who are used to that system and have been playing it for the last number of years. Have Modern not been playing it as well, though? Is this not what we were told coming into this, that they could shut it down? Yeah, I think they have been, but you know they made four changes before the game. Um, I just don't think again. If you look at the f- physical size, like Gilogli's not a big fella, you know, and like I mean, McCarthy came towards him, and if you see it, he just kind of he burst literally through the two of them. Um, both of them are much smaller than him. He uses physical power, but I think even disregarding all of that whether they have Dublin are able to kind of change it up an awful lot um, and what they decided to do was they said okay well our wing backs will actually attack very very hard um, and they'll go running at this kind of blanket defence and then one thing that you saw an awful lot with Dublin yesterday was the, 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 the speed of transfer the ball between hands like I mean they were actually kind of nearly playing one touch football in the forward line so Bernard Brogan would get it he'd flick a hand pass someone else would get it he'd flick a hand pass so the idea always was to change the point of attack and no one would ever take too much out of the ball because if you're a forward playing in the pack defence, as a defender, all you want to see is a fellow who's going to try and take it on because you'll crowd him out. But if the ball's being moved very, very quickly, then it's very hard to actually get a tackle on. And invariably, you'll end up finding a guy who's in a bit of space and he'll take the score. And you could see Dublin, I'd say in the last couple of weeks, they've been practising a lot on kind of eight defenders four forwards, those kind of very, very tight kind of training regimes um, and just trying to get their forward unit used to this kind of situation where there's lots of bodies around and actually trying to find space. And um, it worked. Seamus, I suppose when the, the Dublin strengths are well signposted for teams and you guys came up against them this year, but is it were you still a bit surprised about how good they were and maybe were Monaghan a bit surprised? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I think from our own perspective, we were we were kind of looking back to last year's Leinster final, and we had uh, we had hung in there for about fifty five, sixty minutes. And I suppose that, that our plan last year was kind of go slightly defensive. Um, we focused we focused primarily on their kickouts. That was obviously the, their their main their main strength. We felt we felt. Um, so from that regards, we kind of went zonal. And uh, I think we, we we came out we came out on top up to half time in terms of uh, possessions there. But um, I, th- I think D- Dublin at this stage, like they're just after they're after cranking it up another level. Um, I think if you're to 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 tier the teams at this moment in time, you, you've Dublin just in that top tier out in their own. Um, possibly the likes of uh, Mayo and Kerry then in that second tier. But there's just so many strengths in so many different positions. Um, like you're starting for goalkeeper there, like Stephen Cluxton is obviously his kickouts. Like everyone, everyone before a game, kind of you, you try to analyse them, but he, he just it, it doesn't bother him. It doesn't phase him at all. He'll kick them out to the corner back. He'll kick them out to the wing back, midfield, wherever. Um, and they're just they're getting primary possession, and then from there it's 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 nearly like a second receiver. The likes of James McCarthy coming off the shoulder. And, the likes of him are causing serious damage there. They are potentially loose at the back, and O'Rourke even made reference to this, that he could see that there was space there, but when the modern forwards went to exploit it, maybe they just didn't have the numbers to do it, I guess. Yeah, it, it, actually, it's something similar to what we would have looked at as well before the Leinster final in that um, last year. We kind of turned them over a little bit around the middle, and we could get quick ball into the likes of Stephen Bray because there was the gaps, because they said the half-backs were pushing up. But again, it was another tactic that we tried this year, but we just could not get our hands on the ball. They just their intensity level. It, it did. I, I don't. I suppose to say, shot kind of sounds a little bit naive, but compared compared to last year, they've just they've seemed to taken it on onto a whole new level. Yeah, it's interesting to to hear that, and we're assuming well, we were assuming maybe that Donegal would put it up to them, but the way Seamus talks about them, they seem to have come on so much from last year, uh, Anthony. Yeah, I think. You know, these the kind of defensive systems, the one thing, you know, you look at the, the Mead situation, um, and, and I think it's happened in an awful lot of teams this year, is that, you know, 
sometimes there's a, there's a kind of a cry out for okay, we need to get defensive, you know. Mm-hmm. So a team goes okay, we'll get, we'll we'll we're going to go defensive now. So what do we do? Well, we'll pull a half back in and we'll put him in the somewhere in between the full back line and the half back line. Now, if that fellow isn't used to playing that role, he can get completely lost in there, and actually he can be a complete hindrance. Like we've seen it, mm-hmm. over the years, we would have we would have been crying out as defenders for me going. We wish someone would come back and give because it was always six on six. It was always like it was you against your own man type of thing, and he's relying on midfielder to come back. Um, but the defender can pretty much become inactive. He's nearly just he's standing there clogging up space. But nearly what happens then is that the other defenders think right with an extra man, and then it, it does become looser in terms of kind of the man marking roles. Yeah, responsibility and stuff like that. You know, you kind of let your man drift off and all of a sudden you let him go to the spare man. But these aren't issues that should affect Donegal. Should have been, these are the guys no, who have mastered this. So this is what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so when you come, this is, what, this is the problem. So if you're, if you're a manager, an inter-county manager, you're saying, right, what am I going to do? So this is everyone else, say, barred Donegal. You're saying, okay, am I going to... Because I think to beat this Dublin team, you have to deploy one of two tactics. Either A, you have to go full-on, kind of like a basketball parlance, it's full-on, full-court press, right? So it's like Mayo. So you watch Mayo against court. Cork. When Mayo really started to squeeze Cork in that second half, they pushed right up and they said, right, we're, we're, we're not even going to let you take short kickouts now. So we're going to force you to kick long to our big man, Shamie O'Shea and these lads in the middle of the field and we'll take you from there and we'll have our halfbacks flooding forward. What Donegal will do as well is they'll just go, right, we're actually going to go the opposite way. We'll actually give you the kick out and we'll defend it from way back and we'll actually set up our lines that they set up and they say, right, come and try and break us down. Monaghan were kind of caught in between two stools, if you know what I mean. You know, they, they had players back, but again, they didn't have all the bodies back and, and they're just not as disciplined as Donegal are because they're just not used to it as much as Donegal. You see Donegal against Armagh, they probably didn't need to play as defensively as they could because at one stage they really only had McFadden up forward McFadden wasn't winning ball like he should and when they only switched Murphy in there did Murphy actually give them a focal point and actually said well kick the ball in lads because I'll win it the problem with playing Dublin is Dublin have a lot and they're very very relaxed and they're very comfortable in actually playing a kind of a defensive system but they actually leave most of the time, McManaman and, and Brogan, Alan Brogan in that half forward line, and then they leave Bernard Brogan and the likes of O'Gara in the full forward line. So they always have an out. They always mm. have an option. So people talk about, oh, Paul Friend's a great lad to kick a long pass. Well, he's kicking a long pass because he has actually targets. You know, Donegal come out of defence, you see it even at the weekend. They looked up, they didn't have targets, so they had to use it, carry it more and more. It was the first time in Crow Park this year, they were getting a bit more use of it. Um, and then when they didn't have a focal point, i.e. someone like Murphy to win the ball, they were being caught in sixes and sevens. When they actually changed it around, they started to get their dominance and they probably should have been seven or eight points up before Armagh had their bit of you know, revival. I think this is the way it's going to be. You either, you either, as I say, you do a full court press or you just retreat back. Donegal will retreat back and they are the masters of it. Now, will it be enough to beat this Dublin team? I still don't think so. Was there... Um a couple of signs, or were there a couple of signs, Seamus, this might be a bit harsh in the Dublin forwards, but of a little bit of looseness and selfishness maybe creeping in. And I, I know the big thing about Dublin all year is everyone's happy to play their five or ten minutes and all that, but we're getting to semi-final stage mm. now and I'm sure Cormac Costello's on there going, I've got to bang this one in the top corner rather than trying to lay one off. Yeah, I suppose it's the question everyone wants. They want to kind of see these subs come on when they, when they have to make an impact, not when the game is kind of over. Um as a contest, so to speak, but um, yeah, like I suppose, look at looking there uh, the other night against uh, against Monaghan, it was nearly uh, towards the end. It was training ground stuff. It was lim- simple little one twos, and sure we'll, we'll get in for goals. Like even I suppose Conley's chance there at the end, it was mm. like he really should have been scoring it, but it didn't seem to phase them a whole lot either because it, it, they just have it in their mentality that at this moment of time that they are, they are going to go for goal no matter what. Um, so you're not giving Donegal much of a chance either. Are you? I, like just. It's hard to see if you if if you're to judge Donegal on their last performance. Um, it's hard to know what way Jimmy McGuinness is going to go. He's as uh, as Anthony said there. He's either going to have to go and just allow Dublin have the kickouts and then work it up to him and it's kind of take us on or um, go the full court press. Personally, looking at the game the other day, I, I would I would have felt that Armagh probably left it behind them in a way. Um, like Donegal, obviously Michael Murphy's an exceptional footballer, but. If it wasn't for him, they probably wouldn't have won. Um, he kind of took the game by the scruff of the neck there at a vital, a vital stage. 
like Donegal only had five scores, whereas Armagh had seven. Like, mm. like that's without Jamie Clark hitting form. Um, so like that's something that has to be a major concern for Jimmy McGuinness. Armagh suddenly contenders again, and has Kieran McGinley played this one quite well? He's been back in as part of the backroom team. Seems to have instigated some change in there. After the game, Grimley was saying, "Look, Kieran McGinley's." the best man to lead this team forward without confirming that he himself was stepping away (laughs) and you boys both have (laughs) plenty of experience with with Paul Grimley but uh, don't fill us into that Anthony (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but just on the on the McGinney side of it and where Armagh are now I mean are they suddenly having been nowhere for a few years are they suddenly back I think they're they're definitely on the way back Um, they've unearthed a couple of I suppose players who, who, who are fitting really, really well into their system and, and who just provide excellent kind of roles for me. Stefan Campbell, I think, kind of plays as a kind of a third midfielder. He comes out, he sets an awful lot of stuff up. Um, they're getting back to the arm of old, belligerent, you know, in-your-face you know, they don't mind mixing it. They'll do it any way they can, try and win ugly, win whatever way, you know. Um, and as, as, as Jamie is right, you know, Jamie Clark was, was, was taken out of it really, you know, marked very, very well. But they still managed to kind of, Tony Kernan's had a, has an unbelievable year. Aaron Kernan played well. A few big leaders stood up for them. I don't think, I think Donegal were always going to win it. And I really feel at the start of that second half, Donegal should have kicked on. They kicked seven bad wides, some... McNeil has kicked two or three terrible wides with his left foot instead of actually trying to play in the scorer. But the one worry I would have for Donegal is they are massively reliant on Murphy. Um, McFadden is having a nightmare of a year. Looks completely devoid of confidence. Um, doesn't even look like he wants to take it on. Uh, McBrearty had, had an OK game. But the thing about Donegal Dublin Owen will be Donegal will be happy if this again is 8-7. Mm. They will just shut it right down. Like I mean, you saw the intensity. The McGee lads firing lads out over the advertising hoardings. They will be sitting there with literally pictures of Bernard Brogan up on the wall, going, "Right, this is who we want." You know, you can imagine what they're going to do. They're going to come in and they're going to give them a battle that they haven't had this year. And you know, speaking to one or two fellas in the, in the kind of Dublin setup, they were saying, "Well, they were looking forward to the Monaghan game because it would bring something different that they haven't faced." I still don't think they'll have, they'll have faced what Donegal will bring. And what is your story with Paul Grimley? Uh, no, I have no, I have no story with Paul Grimley. <laughs> None at all. Like, I mean, no, it's like, I mean, it's, not a very happy experience. Ah, no, no, not at all. Like, I mean, no, it's like, I mean, the Paul Grimley, I'm, I'm tripping up here. <laughs> no, Paul was, was involved with us. Uh, I think he's done very well with Armada this year. Fair play to him. I think he's had a, he think he's had a great year. Seamus, what's the, what's the beef? <laughs> I think we'll part that one there. Yeah. I think that Seamus was the one who started this, and uh, then uh, diplomatically parked there. But the big story with Grimley this year and Armagh is this media ban or whatever it was. Uh, Grimley's latest one on this after the game, I don't know if you read these comments, was well, there seems to be a number of different issues, but it, it started with I'm sorry to laugh here, but he said this was a simple thing. It started out over a simple gesture. We sent people down to the Ulster Championship launch in Belfast. Peter McDonald represented our management. He sat for two and a half hours and not one reporter approached him. So I decided we would say nothing. If no one was interested in what we have to say, we'll say nothing. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's all fine. I suppose managers can do what they want, but is it a little bit... Should there be obligations or, or, or punishments? Am I just talking about this from a media point of view? It just seems weird that a manager can essentially take the hump and then um, deny access. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the way Paul used it this year was kind of... Uh, siege mentality. A siege mentality. And look, to, to a certain extent, it, it, it worked, but it was kind of... Uh, it, it's pressure that the players didn't need. or any. I, th- I thought it was a little bit silly myself, but look... It was Paul's. That's the way he wanted to go with it, and um, it does. It does sound rather silly now that he comes out with a statement like that towards the end of the year. And that particular story is over, but it does indicate that they're just. They're, they're, in fact, it's the GA have said that there's no obligation on managers as such that the GA themselves would try to impress upon them the idea that you should be speaking, that you should be more open. But there's no punishment or anything like that. Um, the amount of money coming in, the TV coming into the game, all these sort of things, should there not be an onus on managers? And I think it puts, I think A, it puts too much pressure on the players. Um, B, people should be talking about how well Armagh have played, how well the system has done, all these different things. And actually, due to a media ban, there's been nothing but talk about Armagh and the media ban. Like, I mean, they've been more in the press than <laughs> if they actually just faced up to it and gave a few interviews. And as we were saying, like Misham, I tell you, 
you know, you give interviews when you're playing, you, you're saying loads and you're saying absolutely nothing. You know, like, I mean, a fellow probably walks away and goes, well, that's a waste of time. How do I how do I get a decent story out of this? So, but now the actual story was there because it's 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 beautiful. And people were questioning, well, why are they doing this now? Has someone said something? Did someone really upset someone? And if that's it, you know. That seems to be the start of it. He said then, then after that, the obviously the issue happened around the, the flags and the the game against Cavan and he seemed to get wound up by the coverage of that for whatever reason but but he um, devoted enough time to Anthony Moyes' favourite manager Seamus Um, you've retired and as some players wait this is after 15 years with your county some players wait until the depth of winter just to be sure that they don't want to be coming back again you've made the decision reasonably quickly yeah um, I was a decision I probably made at the start of last year Um, I suppose the way the way the year went, uh, sorry, 2000 and 2013 went, uh, getting to the Leinster final, and then probably felt against Tyrone, we left it behind us, um, and then coming back from sort of a couple of injuries, I felt that I, I still had something to offer, um, and then in October, I suppose Miko Miko kind of made a good few changes to the panel. Some of the older lads, or some of the lads that I would have played with for a good few years, were kind of they they were let go, and Miko asked me would I would I stay involved. So like there was a lot of kind of factors like that. They said, yeah, look, I'd love to give it another year. Um, like I knew obviously sort of being thirty four and uh, family commitments and stuff like that that it was going to be tough. Um, plus the body has probably gone through a fair few injuries over the last few years that um it was it was going to be me last year. Are you worried at all with the way it ended this year for the team that the good work that's definitely been done is possibly going to fizzle out? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I think we're just in a place now where we don't know where we are. Yeah. Um, as I said, Mick came in and he made a lot of changes to the panel. Um, the panel is pretty much unrecognisable to kind of the team that myself and Anthony would have played in sort of 2010. Um, and so there was there was that air of optimism in, in the county, kind of sort of, as I said, getting to the Lens of final run in Dublin close, then sort of Tyrone and sort of you probably felt, as I said, we left it behind us and it, sort of Tyrone progressing to a semi-final that there was that air of optimism in the county um, so like we kind of went into the, went into the league this year with with high enough hopes of promotion um, with a decent enough campaign if a result had gone away we would have got promoted uh, and then look after the Kildare game every, everything was, was on such a high that we felt within the squad that we were confident of of maybe well of beating Dublin in the Leinster final but then to take the to take the, the the manner of defeat that we did, um, I suppose everyone was kind of left scratching their heads and we really didn't wear, know where we were coming into the RMI game. Like obviously training had gone really well but you still you still didn't know because you hadn't played at that stage and I think the manner that the Armagh defeat was in a way nearly worse than the Dublin one because we just felt that um didn't perform, that we kind of, we didn't do ourselves justice quite honestly. We, we were nearly a little bit headless in our performance and it did you kind of came away from Crow Park that night and you're probably very disillusioned I wouldn't well not totally disillusioned but you're definitely questioning where exactly you were so I, I don't know from from Mick's from Mick's point of view like he's probably going to have to review review the year and review everything um, and kind of come up with another plan because in fairness to him it, it was going well but mm. just, I suppose, the way it's finished, there's probably more question marks than, than positives. And from your own point of view, uh, did that make it any more difficult? You said the decision was already made. I'm sure every player l- would love to be you know, playing in an All-Ireland final to finish things up. Oh, yeah. Like I, <laughs> the, the, way I had, the way I had it in my head is obviously completely different to the way it finished. Um, like, unfortunately, kind of the way my year went, I, I pulled, uh, I pulled um, a groin muscle on the Wednesday night before the game, so I couldn't even talk out. And kind of in the back of my mind, I was going, Jesus, we're bad here, that's it, I'm done. And it was very, it was very surreal, kind of sitting in the bus, we were stuck in traffic outside Crow Park, as always happens, and a really wet, dreary night, and you're kind of going, it's not supposed to end like this, but it has, and uh, like I've had many, many's a good time, many great experiences, um, but like it, it does, it obviously has to come to an end at some time. I guess that sport, Anthony, it, for most players, it probably doesn't end with the bother just go away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it doesn't. No, no. It's, al- it's, it's always pretty <laughs> sad and kind of you know, you're scratching, you're going, literally, what am I doing? Here? Thinking, have I been forgotten about already? After you know. Yeah, and I suppose that's a big thing, uh, and it's a big thing to kind of get over, even for you know, a, a player always wants to kind of finish on a high. He wants to finish. The, like it'd be great to kind of walk out and go right. That's me done. You know, conference is done, and you you kind of leave it in in better stead. But it's not always like that. You know, it's it certainly isn't. 
Okay, uh, it's great to have the both of you in. Seamus, Anthony, thanks a million. Cheers, 100%. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. I couldn't quite prize open the Mead players' feelings on Paul Grimley there, Ken. Although, I get the sense it was a relationship that didn't quite work out on either side. Maybe not a good fit is the best way to describe it. But good stuff from the lads on the end of both their careers, uh, inter-county-wise. I think it's probably true of all sport that it doesn't that it can often end not particularly well or not in the way that that you would hope it does. But maybe particularly in GA where there are no contracts signed or anything like that. So there's no you don't have any right necessarily to be with the team. You're, it's at the whim of a manager and sometimes, a lot of times players, you don't even know if they're retired or not. They just kind of disappear off the scene. So uh, at least it was maybe a little bit clearer for Seamus there, but as he said himself, uh, he would have liked to have finished in um, slightly less grim circumstances. Good career though, uh, 15 years, so congratulations to him. And that's pretty much it from this show, Ken. We've got another one coming out later with the Community Shield chat and Hank Tenkate, who you built up a little bit earlier on. You can listen to the show, uh, to any of the Irish Times programmes on irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. The email address to get us at is secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too, huh? Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you later. Take care. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.